You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There is nothing. Hello, Hello. I'm Leanne Minshall, and I'm Anna Bateman, and welcome to What's Tasmania's Future 2050. Today we are talking to Kirsha Kashala, a woman that many of you may know as the partner of David Walsh, founder of Mona, but that is in fact the least interesting thing about her. Kirsha is an artist and designer and she's been using art to reinvigorate communities across the globe for decades. We had our first chat with Kirsha in her home overlooking the Derwent River and we started off by asking her when she came to Tasmania. I first came in... 2007 for a visit and my first impression was that you could see the water from almost every vantage point. I was pretty taken by that. And then I moved here in 2010. I again thought it was sort of physically beautiful but I was a little troubled by how um, monocultural it was. I went to the Republic Bar for a concert and I looked around and everyone was white and I was very... um, disturbed, coming from New Orleans, which is so multicultural. I was born in California and raised in Guam, and a bit in Japan as well. So in Guam, I was a minority. Yes, so I'm used to, I'm not used to being in a room full of white people. It definitely caught me off guard. I was a bit of a traveler before I ended up in New Orleans, and I was just so captivated by the underground art scene there and the richness of the culture. And I just felt for the first time like I was really in over my head and kind of witnessing this complex society that I couldn't understand. I felt very uncool and therefore captivated. And so I just stayed. Did you feel like you were part of the community by the time you left? Yeah, deeply. I remember one day very early on, I'd only been there a week or something, and was having a conversation with a guy on the corner. He was sitting on his porch And he was saying things to me, and I just could not understand what he was saying. And keep in mind, I'd been traveling all over the world at that point. It's not like I hadn't had exposure to a lot of cultures, but I could not understand him. And he said, girl, you got to learn to talk black. (laughs) So I was like, wow, that is true. That is actually true. And so, yes, by the end of 11 years, I was fluent and felt very integrated in the culture and and had deep bonds and still do. Mm. Are there any similarities between where you were living in New Orleans and Hobart, or are they completely different? Yeah, they're pretty different. Yeah, they're pretty different. I mean, there are worlds that you can enter that are sort of on the negative, maybe kind of lost in time, dysfunctional, but also very cohesive. Mm. So, you know, visiting Bridgewater, Gagebrook is in some way similar to some of the neighborhoods in New Orleans, but really, no, they're very different. Mm. Very different. Did you have a formal education? Did you go to university? Yeah, I did, but I didn't actually finish, but I was only one quarter short of finishing. And what discipline were you looking at? I was most engaged in political theory, but I did a lot of anthropology And I co-created the first sustainable design major, even though I never finished it. 
<laughs> so I was doing a lot of sustainable design and sort of art architecture as it related to sustainability. Can you talk to us a little about that work that you do in Gagebook? Well, I've just started forming relationships there and that does feel similar to my first years in New Orleans where you kind of just show up and I guess you're at the mercy of the neighborhood and you have all of these kinds of enlightening and very interesting conversations. Yeah, I, I am moved. I'm moved by my time in Gagebrook. I've started talking to a lot of people and interviewing, especially teenagers, but some adults too, asking about their interests and what they want to see happen there. And is there any themes coming through with the people that you're talking to? As Huge themes, especially with the young boys. And actually, no, it's not just the young boys. It's all males seem to be obsessed with taking apart and putting back together motor vehicles. Blowing shit up, um, stealing cars, taking them apart, putting them back together. Most people seem to be backyard mechanics. It's a huge part of the culture. You'll see these vehicles that have been kind of modified or pieced together with different parts. And then there's also an enormous fascination around motorbikes. I think in general there's a desire to suppress that because it's Mm. destructive. Granted, it's quite destructive and dangerous. I'm kind of taken by that passion and I think that perhaps there should be some consideration on how to harness that and celebrate it, and that perhaps there could even be special paths just for that. It becomes the place in the world where motorbike heads can just come and get around by motorbike and have special races and rallies and, Mm. you know, just celebrate it. Yeah. Since that is the kind of, I want to say national, (laughs) it's not a different country, but it feels like one. It's definitely the major pastime among the males. One of our other WTF is Scott Rankin. He runs Big Heart in the Northwest. He made a doco about five years ago called Drive. It's set in the Northwest of Tasmania. All right. Because they've got the highest death rate from 18 to 25 year old males. From accidents. From accidents in cars. Mm-hmm. And, it, and he sort of delves into that whole culture and then thinks about ways that I guess what you're saying as well how you harness that because the other thing just as you were saying it which struck me is what is it that you do when you've got the car it's actually you've got something physical and you're deconstructing it and you're putting Mm, it back together again that's actually having quite a lot of control over something in a good way not a bad way but you're able to control control that process and creativity problem solving how do you start and these conversations? Do you just rock up to I the just local rock petrol up. station? <laughs> yeah. I mean, New Orleans prepared me for that. You can't scare me. And there's not really guns here. So, you know, in New Orleans, mm-hmm. the risks are much greater. But, I mean, your chances of really running into danger are probably higher in a wealthy neighborhood. If someone's out to do harm, yeah. they're going to come there to get you. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't even thinking from the safety perspective, especially males. Australian males aren't known for their gregarious and open chatty nature a lot of the time Mm. so you must have some charm to get them to even talk like do you literally Mm. just go and hang out in the neighborhood or like what yeah yeah. no I think I'm very charming no (laughs) no um I, I hope they think that no I just pull up in my car which is a Tesla they they're kind of baffled by it they don't even seem to know what it is uh so I'm kind of expecting some like wow what's that no nothing Then I just get out (laughs) and um, walk up. Hey, how's it going? Fine. 
So, you know, I'm thinking of doing the project here. I want to do something that involves education, but not in a boring way, you know, something based on fun. And I'm just wanting to know what people around here are interested in. So that takes the heat off. And then they say, oh, nothing. Like again and again, that was yeah. the number one answer. Nothing. Come on. Really? Come on. Drugs. Okay, great. But I can't start a drug school. So, and then I'm like, well, actually I can, but I'll get back to that. We'll, play, we'll get to that later. <laughs> That's chemistry, medical marijuana facility with Utah's, you know, research institute. Yes, I can start a drug school. Yeah. Um, you know, again, go through the interests of the young person and combine that with higher education mm. and, and, and creating aspirations. Yeah. Anyway. Drug school aside, I said, okay, well, what else? And then they'll say people around here are into motorcycles, cars, or they'll even say, I like stealing cars. You know, occasionally someone will say, I'm interested in rocks and stars. This 11-year-old boy said, I'm interested in rocks and stars. Oh, I love you. <laughs> Just love you. <laughs> but that was the exception, although those types are everywhere. So have you spoken about the idea around hacking out in Gagebrook at all, or are you still sort of just at the... Well, I think, you know, hacking has a lot of interpretations. So I'm allowing myself to kind of approach it more uh, from a broader perspective. Mm. So at the moment, you know, I realized, okay, I'm not really ready to build this facility that I'm dreaming of, which I imagine would be about you know, six or eight million dollars. Mm. So in the meantime, I can do pop-up projects. Mm. And um, I think for the next few years, we'll just do some of these pop-up hacking schools that kind of take place in different sites and engage different areas of the community. Tell us about some of the pop-up projects. Okay, so the first one was born of the University of Tasmania asking um, David and I to contribute to their children's university program. Our attitude was, okay, the program seems pretty good. I mean, it's not at the top of my list in terms of what we could support, but they support our 24-karat garden program. So tit for tat, fine, I'll sign the damn paper. That's not an advertisement for philanthropy, by the way. <laughs> um, in that case, it felt like we had to. So I was just about to sign, and then Sarah Proud, whom I work with, took a look and said, here's the breakdown, you know, 98% of the budget is going towards bus rental mm. for one year. So I thought, okay, if most of $50,000 in one year is just going to renting buses so that these field trips can take place, you know, children's university, kids visit important learning destinations throughout the city. It's great. I said, no, that's a terrible investment. It's much better to buy a bus. Yeah. So then I knew who else was kind of being approached to support this children's university program. And I went to them and said, are you having the same feelings I am about this budget? Why don't we get together and buy a bus? And we won't have to spend the money every year. And so they all liked that idea. And meanwhile, I was doing these interviews with the sort of bad kids of Bridgewater and Gagebrook. And they, yeah, they just wanted to do vehicular modification. So then, turned out one of the funders is an ion battery power specialist. Oh. 
yes, Dave Warren. So I went to him and said, hey, what do you think about, you know, converting a bus to ion battery power? And he got excited and said, all right, I'm in, I'm in. And I then approached Monash University and their industrial design department, and it just so happened that the head of industrial design is a bus building specialist. Wow. So the result was University of Tasmania's computer science school, art school, architecture school, and Monash University's industrial design school will run courses for their university students where they're working with the high school students and dropouts to build this ion battery-powered monster vehicle bus (laughs) that serves the children's (laughs) university's purposes for field trips, but on weekends and after school hours can operate on a rideshare software that, again, the young people design with computer science department, and then they have sort of ownership of this bus. Yep. They can run it, use it. It's one of the number one issues for those northern suburbs, Bridgewater mm. and Gagebrook, which is isolation. Mm. And it's very hard to get out of there. Yeah. And it's impossible to get out of there in style. So we've raised funds to do it now, and the university came in on that as a major funder. So the team is together. We've had our first meetings, and we are going to begin in June. Great. Yes, and then just our dumb luck. Someone had thought, hey, let's build this trade center in Bridgewater to try and address unemployment, where you know young people can learn to be mechanics. And they'd build a $6 million facility. It's an amazing space. Huge ceilings, welding booths, machine booths, spray booths, everything you need to build a bus. And, you know, it's really nice because although I appreciate that program and that idea, hey, let's create some jobs, I don't actually appreciate it. In fact, I kind of resent it because it just perpetuates this idea that if you're from a poor area, you'll, you should aspire towards that's a working class yeah. position. And I just think that's kind of bullshit. Yeah. So, you know, the pathways provided should be leading you straight to the top and straight to mm. a six-figure salary. Mm. You need to create these opportunities that are based on the passions of the people in the neighborhood. Yeah. So what is their passion? Base it on that and then somehow create a direct route to serious education, learning, and opportunity. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? I sort of find that, and it's not their parents' fault because they're just trying to survive everything else, but it's also the power of somebody simply being interested in you. Absolutely. You know, somebody actually just going... Oh, it's been great that you can do that. Yeah, and it applies to parents too. Absolutely. Yeah, I was talking to a parent the other day in Gagebrook, and he was sort of glazed over, staring into space. I was asking him what he was interested in, and finally, surprise, surprise, (laughs) being a mechanic, backyard motor modification. And so, yeah, I asked him if he could help with this project, and it was really beautiful to see the... Ice melt and this kind of enthusiasm set in. Yeah. That's fantastic. And so then that goes to the other part of it is that you can't 
isolate these projects from the people. So, that, so even though this facility is amazing where we intend to build the bus, the whole project can't take place there. It has to be partially located right in the neighborhood where people have no option but to walk past. Mm. And so then the curiosity mounts, and if they see you struggling with something or doing something, they get involved, and you end up with a much greater participation. Is there anything in that you've noticed in Tasmania, that you, be it community or environment, anything, that you think that this is a strength or an asset that Tasmania has? Yeah, a number of things. So obviously the food culture is really strong in Tasmania. And what's amazing is that when you travel to other countries, that people will say, oh, Tasmania, you have a very strong foodie culture, don't you? So that has been beautifully communicated, I think, internationally. And that is a strength that probably resulted from economic isolation. You know, some of those old artisanal methods had to be practiced mm. and preserved because there was not enough wealth to go and buy packaged foods yeah. when that was in fashion. What kind of was a flaw became a feature and is really working for Tasmania. And so that's stunning. The food culture is stunning. And I think the more we can support that and develop that as the brand and teach young people these skills so that it can go through generations, the more we sort of claim that, the better. I think Tasmania should be home to the world's best culinary institute. Mm. You know, the, the new Cordon Bleu, the place that people dream of attending. I am sort of fascinated, you know, my core philosophy behind all work is this idea of transforming a flaw into a feature. Mm. So you have to look at the sort of shittiest, most challenging, most sort of unappealing element and figure out how that can work for you and how it's actually mm. an um, asset. I think this idea of sort of boganism as holding promise is really <laughs> a good it's challenge. Like bogan. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, and also embrace the bo your bogan. And I think that it's fascinating to think about flipping these established routes where we think, oh, we're going to go to the city to experience culture um, and to go to the cool restaurants and the cool cafes. I really like the idea that you could create draws in the northern suburbs where um, your Sandy Bay residents might be really excited to go up to Gagebrook to try this dish you know, by Shannon Bennett in collaboration with the kids in Gagebrook yep. at the pop-up food truck restaurant. That would be great. That would mm. be fantastic. Sometimes when you talk about people who do projects in underprivileged areas, it's almost, it's and it's well-intentioned, but it's seeing through their lens of, and this is good and I need to make them better, mm. better which means different, mm. whereas this is just like how do we reshape our lens to appreciate what's already there. Mm. Yeah, it's a different view. It's very challenging. Yeah. And I am absolutely guilty of this kind of missionary perspective yeah. where I want to come in and show fix everything. fix everything and show young people what's right. I'm absolutely guilty of it. And I've even had sort of moments of realization where I've been sitting in, for example, you know, the RSL in Glenorchy looking around and seeing how integrated and cohesive the culture is 
and feeling pain because I thought, wow, my projects are actively dissolving this. It's confronting. So, you know, it's just a, I don't have the solution, but the question is how do you act? At the same time, I don't think it's right that a young person's options would be so slim and that poverty is perpetuated and your chance of going to jail is higher. And, you know, and in New Orleans, your chance of dying is through the roof because of gun violence in gangs for young people. So yes, how do you work with and try to kind of shift some of those problems while celebrating and maintaining and even hopefully enhancing the individuality and beauty of the culture? You know, by identifying A, what they love and what they're good at, actually showing them respect. Mm. So I think that's a brilliant mm. way to do it. It's a good start. Um, and as long as then... I'm sure I'll keep learning. <laughs> you know, they, maybe I'll end up at that Zen perspective where, in fact, you don't touch it. You know, you just watch. Scott Rankin talks about the flow and that, you know, existence flows and we shape it slightly, but it's not the narrative of the mm. victor and the loser. It's yeah, well, a, it's except when it the is. Flow. There are plenty rocks in the stream, you know. Yeah. And if you're so inclined to be the fighter, or then that's just part of it. So many great ideas. I love the way her approach is to sit down with people and actually get a sense of what they're interested in and then build on it from there. So it's not imposed on them. They have agency, right? No, that's right. I think that's the common thread through all of her ideas. But my God, there's so many bloody ideas to choose from in that woman's head and vision. It's hard to think if we wanted to try and nail it down a bit, what would you do? So that's why I went back to Mona to have another chat with Keisha Kashala. And here it is. Hello, Keisha. Hi. Hey, thanks for talking to us again. So for your big hairy goal for 2050, and you touched on last time we spoke, was the hacking. That's right. I wanted to dig into that because that's a really fabulous idea. Yeah, so I'm really interested in creating a kind of opportunity centre for disadvantaged youth, or as David would call them, rights-denied youth. I think there's whole areas of um, Tasmania where there just isn't enough going on for young people. There's kind of multi-generational poverty or unemployment, and the areas are kind of culturally bleak. They're just not exciting enough. And so I'm interested in making a center in this area, one in particular that I'm fascinated with being sort of Gagebrook, Bridgewater Gagebrook, and that it'd be a place where young people kind of lead projects with their own interests, but it all ties into high-tech education. And so it's a hacking school in that, you know, it's subversive, it's anti-government, it's it's perfect for disenfranchised youth who just hate the system <laughs> and they all want to be part of it. And then the individual projects are based around their interests. So, you know, if they're into motorbikes, great. If they're into beauty, great, no matter what the interest of the young person is, you can build high-tech curriculum around that. You know, so for example, you know, a lot of the girls in Gagebrook and Bridgewater have told me that their number one interest is beauty. And so, okay, well, you know, your initial response might be to sort of dismiss that and to kind of discourage furthering that interest and try to open up other ones. 
But in fact, I'm coming to realize it's more interesting and effective if you build curriculum around the interest. So we'll make a beauty school, a really super glamorous beauty school that is a functioning salon. So there's an entrepreneurial aspect as well. They're running a business. And of course, there's all of the design associated with that, the architecture and interior design. It's a functional business and a functional beauty school where you can get a beauty degree, but everything is connected to a tech lab and a chemistry lab. And so when it's time to do nail extensions, which are quite popular with the girls, you can um, 3D scan your nail bed and do sort of the best nail extensions because they're custom made for your nail bed. And then you can 3D print them and, and code in all kinds of designs. You can code a topography onto the nail. When those hacking conferences first started, you know, they would say, okay, let's see if we can hack into NORAD or whatever it was. Mm. Um, and then it became that thing that companies were coming to people like that and saying, can you try and hack into my business so I can see where all the... Yes, cybersecurity. Yes, and that cybersecurity stuff seems to be like a perfect fit for Tassie because we've got, you know, there is a history of anti-authoritarianism. There's also the darker history, but... It's a great idea for young people. Well, for one thing, I mean, it's kind of guaranteed job placement and a six-figure career. Again, it comes from the subversive spirit. So there's these playgrounds where you can practice breaking into things. I mean, granted, you know, there's always the risk that you're creating cyber criminals. But you don't deny information because of particular risks. I mean, unless you're, like, teaching how to make deadly viruses or something. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's just a huge field. It's an enormous growing field and it has a fascinating bridge between kind of left wing and right wing values. And again, it's just fun for a bad teenager. It's a very fun subject and it's a way to get into coding because coding can be hard work and there's a lot of boring kind of groundwork that has to be learned. So you have to associate that with things that are more fun. Yeah, so Hobart's hacking high school. <laughs> mm, totally. And I imagine it, you know, I don't currently have funding for this, but I imagine a facility, you know, at least a six or eight million dollar facility on the water in Bridgewater. And you have to get there by, you know, battery powered speedboat of which, you know, the students are tinkering and they're tinkering on and building these things. Via their hand built high tech motorcycle. Absolutely, an electric seaplane, if that's possible. Yeah, it's just interesting. We're, we are building currently a hacking school in New Orleans, and that kind of came out of gun policy. I was trying to think about a new way of interpreting the Second Amendment because of all of the death around, um, well, in the population of teenage boys in New Orleans. It's awful. I mean, every weekend another kid is dying from gun violence. So I was trying to think of how to draw their attention away from guns. You know, I built a, record, a rap recording studio and that's been very effective, but you know, it doesn't create quite enough opportunity. I wanted also some more serious training and job preparation. And so I'm building this facility now where MIT Media Lab can come and run a project with the young people, where again, the young people drive the project. So, for example, we asked these young gangster boys, you know, what would you do with a drone? 
your first question was, what's a drone? And so you talk about it and you show them videos. Oh, that's badass. Yeah, we like the drones. So what would you do with them? We would program them to follow the police and tell us on our phones where they are, you know, so we can see on a map. I was like, okay, well, I called my friend who's a Beckerman fellow at Harvard and I said, he's on our board. I said, is that legal? Like, can they do that? And he said, absolutely, absolutely they can. And so then these university students from top tech universities, they find it very fun and interesting to go and work with groups like this in a neighborhood like that. And so they're rewarded by the exchange and also the innovation of them coming from the minds of these young gangsters. <laughs> they're doing a project that they would not be doing at their university. But as a result, these friendships are formed between the kids in the neighborhood and these university students. And suddenly the idea of going to university isn't so foreign. And in fact, should you happen to excel in that project, you might even get an invitation, which would be something we would of course support. Great, Kirsha, yeah. so we just need to go out and raise about $8 million. $8 million bucks. I think we could do it for that. I don't know, maybe 20 is better, but I could probably do it for $8. Um, Kirsha, thank you You're very welcome. much for being part of our WTF 2050 podcast, and we're going to keep following the story. So Excellent. We'll be back to talk to you again. Thank Great. you. Excellent. Next week on our last episode of Series 1, we talk to Rosie Martin. Rosie Martin is a speech pathologist and founder of Chatter Matters and has been doing some of the most interesting work on restorative justice, not just in Tasmania, but in Australia. And her goal, her big hairy goal, was the one that really got everybody talking. Here's our chat. Communication is a great enabler. We've been saying it this way, that if people can't speak out, they'll act out. And for some, that acting out tips over into crime. And so the solutions lie in helping people to speak out. For any of us, even when we've got really good language skills, if I'm struggling to express something, it might be that my frustration is increasing or I feel myself to be a bit stupid in that moment not being able to express. And what rises? But frustration. And for many of us, look, it does tip over into, you know, yelling or to, you know, slamming a door. Uh, and I think that probably all of us can relate to those moments where we've behaved badly in response to not being able to express ourselves clearly or not feeling that we've been heard. WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshall. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at The Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.